Cells are the building blocks of life. South Dakota scientists search for the next big discovery. From SDPB Radio, it's Thursday, August 31st, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, the science of cells will explore cell communication and cancer and talk about how that might impact treatment. A $2 million grant will help one Sanford research scientist look at cells and signals that interact with developmental disorders. We'll also talk about the social media conversation around a mounted exotic animal collection in Sioux Falls. Kevin Wooster has thoughts on that, plus a woman who lost her sister in a 1982 mass shooting joins us. We'll talk about grief, memory, and her childhood at the iconic Sioux Falls Cafe, Bob's Cafe. We're live today from SDPB's Kirby Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. And I'm Lori Walsh. Think back now to your middle school science class. Do you remember learning all the parts of the cell? Do you remember the cilia? and what they do in the cell, or what happens when they don't do their jobs. That last part is a question the National Institute of General Medical Sciences is also interested in. They just awarded a $2 million grant to Dr. Abdel Halim Lukil to study celia and their role in certain rare neurological diseases. And Dr. Lukil is with me now in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Welcome, Halim. Thanks for being here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation and highlighting these, um, the, this grant and the research we're doing at Sanford Research and Sanford Health. Let's start with the problem or the research question that uh, is, what are you trying to solve? What, what are you looking into? Yeah, so uh, in the lab, so my lab started last year um, at Sanford Research. Uh, we're interested in understanding uh, biological processes, as you said, related to primary cilia. And I think uh, one of the main aspects of this grant was to uh, try to understand the role of this organelle in, in, the, in, the, in the brain. It was under-studied and under-explored for a long time in the neuroscience field. So this is one of the major aspects of, of our research. Cells are made of organelles. This is sixth grade science, but it's so much more complicated than that. Tell us a little bit about your lab and the kind of um, the people who are doing the work, the equipment that you need, help us understand how you're going to do this research. Yeah, of course. Uh, so my team is still small, but we are expanding uh, for more people to come in and, and do the work. And so um, the main aspect uh, uh, or like the main technology we're using, basically the mouse model, as well as cutting edge uh, microscopy. That's the things we are we are using um, day to day in our lab. And I think um, most importantly, we are tirelessly working on and identifying novel targets and therapeutics um, that could be used uh, to help patients. That's what we do. All right. So, what's cilia? Tell us a little bit what it looks like in a diagram. That's that's ex- like that's a great question. So, uh, the cilium is like an antenna. Uh, it's a sensory organelle. It's important for our development. Without it, we can't uh, develop, right? So, and uh, what we uh, have uh, like the the sensory uh, meaning it's detecting extracellular. Uh, uh, signals. So you can imagine you s- the psyllium being on the top of the cell, so it's about two, three microns of a size. It's present in our body um, and, and different tissues. And so you can imagine the cell as the house or the car and the uh, primary psyllium as the antenna that detects the radio signals. So uh, it's detecting 
of course, not radio signals, but uh, other uh, um, things happening around the cell. So, uh, and the microenvironment there is pretty diverse uh, when you talk about, for example, the tissue, like the brain tissue, is different from the kidney. And we have primary cilia in both organs. Okay, so you're interested in all of it, or do you, are you focusing on, on brain cilia? So, yeah, <laughs> we were focusing mostly on the uh, neuronal cilium, uh, cilium uh, which is present in the brain. So, uh, basically, we have different cells in the brain, uh, including neurons and glial cells, astrocytes, and these are all important for our brain function. And all, most of these cil uh, cells are ciliated, but the function of these primary cilia and these uh, cells are still poorly understood. That's why we got funded for this, uh, uh, basically, uh, grant, and, and we were going to do the work to, to understand these processes in the brain. So you said without, you know, healthy processes that, you know, humans can't develop. And then I'm curious about human behavior. Is it like, it's like physical growth? Is it like neurological growth? Is it behavior? Help me understand what, what am I... I don't think I even know what I'm asking, but... No, I, you're asking the right yeah. question. These are the questions we submitted to, for the application. So we want to okay. understand how this primary cilium will regulate these processes of, the, for example, neurons. Um, these neurons will have dendrites or like arms that will go around and, and then basically transmit signals. Uh, and that's how... We, we shape our behavior, we shape our ideas, we shape, we shape our, our, our uh, total behavior as, as a human being. And so the role of that tiny small organelle of two microns is still poorly understood. We know exactly what the dendrite or like what an axon of the neuron uh, is doing, but the, the primary cell itself is still poorly understood. I hope it's it's a little yeah. bit clearer. So are, I'm curious too, from you personally, how you got into this, you know, narrowing your research down. Are you looking for something that nobody understands, and they were like, "I'm going to do that," or did you kind of just through your own curiosity and professional work come to the place where you're like, "This is where I belong as a well, scientist." Well, I'm going to make the story short. So um, I'm originally from Tunisia. I went to France to do my PhD. And then I went to the United States. I did my first uh, postdoctoral studies and, uh, at the University of California, Irvine. And there I was introduced to the primary psyllium and the organelle underneath it, which is the centrosome. And from there, it was the adventure of going to Duke University and then expand these postdoctoral studies and uh, expand that to, under, to try to understand this primary psyllium uh, uh, basically in the brain. And there uh, we were doing uh, uh, mouse work um, uh, using the mouse model uh, to try to really decipher, decipher these uh, different aspects. So yeah, it's a long story. Yes, it's through my postdoctoral studies that I, wa I was interested in these aspects. So much if there was more funding. I know $2 million seems like a lot of money. It is. But we talked a little bit before about... Um, Funding for scientific research is, is, is largely underfunded. Mm -hmm. If you had, we'll just say more, would it be more people working on the same problem? Would it be more equipment? Would it be more machine learning assisting? Like what, what does more money toward research give you as far as what you're able to study and how fast you're able to come to results. Yeah, it's it's the probably the fast like the the speed. the speed aspect is is the one that so if you get more money you can go faster you can hire more people you can you can use more technological yeah. we we are using those but uh, at at the rhythm of one grant so if you get more more grants that's something uh, I'm interested in in expanding these research 
in my, my lab, and I think it's something that other principal investigators at Sanford Research are interested in into it as well. So having more money to go faster and, and get the understand the, these biological processes as fast as possible, and then find ways and novel strategies to uh, uh, to basically create new new therapeutics to help patients with neurological yeah. disorders. Yes. To change people's lives. Will yes. you see that in your lifetime? I would hope to. That's yeah. the goal. I hope that too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dr. Harim Lukil, thank you so much for being here with Stanford Research. We really appreciate your time and we look forward to following your research in the days ahead. Thank you, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, there is a little bird who will soon be scurrying along the sandbars of the Missouri River between Yankton and Vermilion. The piping plover will look for clear areas to build nests. A project at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers intends to help them out. Galen Johns is a natural resource specialist with the Corps, and he joins us on the phone with more. Galen Johns, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Lori. It's great to be here. We're going to talk here in a minute about the vegetation management and what people need to know about the process. But first, introduce us to the piping plover and uh, what kind of habitat needs they have. Certainly. The uh, piping plover is a small shorebird. It's about the size of a robin. Um, It has a white-colored breast, and its back is the color of dry sand. So if it's turning away from you on a sandbar, it blends right in at the sand. It's very hard to see. Uh, They build their nests out on barren areas of the sandbar. They basically uh, create a little bowl in the sand. That's where they lay their eggs, and they will incubate those eggs. They typically lay four eggs, and it takes about four weeks for those eggs to hatch. And then another four weeks for the piping plover chicks to be able to fly. And it's... During those eight weeks from being egg being laid to until the chick can fly, that those plovers are very vulnerable, and they prefer large open expanses of bare sand because that way they can see predators coming. And if they see predators coming, uh, the adult will get off the nest and go meet the predator long before it gets to the nest, uh, pretend it. It will pretend it has a broken wing, and that will draw the predator away from the nest. All right. So in order for that all to happen as it should, that area has to be free of vegetation. What's your role in making sure that that happens? Uh, That's correct on the vegetation. And our role is to try to keep the sandbars from becoming too vegetated, Uh, This used to happen naturally before the dams were placed on the Missouri River. The river would flood every few years, and it would move the sand around. It would scrub vegetation off of sandbars. Uh, It would create new sandbars, and that would be uh, great for creating habitat for these birds. But since we now have the dams in place, we no longer have all the flooding that the river used to create. So the sandbars are pretty static. They stay the same year after year, and that creates a perfect environment for vegetation to grow up on them. And a vegetated sandbar is not good habitat for piping plovers. So what uh, needs to be done, and how do you go about doing it uh, in September? 
Well, we go out there and we apply aquatic herbicides to these sandbars. Uh, we typically use a helicopter to apply the herbicides. That works most effectively for us. And we do this in September. We do it after Labor Day because that's when we get the, the best um, kill on the vegetation. The plants are starting to die back for the winter. And when they do that, they will translocate nutrients to their roots so that the roots can survive through the winter. Well, if we apply the herbicide then, they will translocate the herbicides to the roots also, and that will kill the roots and will get a much more effective kill on the plants. So what do you need the and public to the public to know about the process? How do you, um, what do you want them to understand about what might be happening? Uh, the, the main goal that we're trying to do out there is trying to put habitat back into the river that would have occurred if we didn't have the dams. Yeah. And so some people see us out there spraying herbicide. They think we're destroying the habitat. Uh, they're used to vegetation being habitat for birds. In this case, we want no vegetation for these particular birds for them to be successful. So we are creating a, a different type of habitat that the river would create naturally through flooding. And we don't want flooding, so we are using uh, vegetation management through herbicides. Interesting. All right. Have you ever hung out with a piping plover? Do you get to see them, or do you, is that something that you don't, that you don't get to do in your role? Uh, yes, we, I get to see them quite a bit. And, you know, there's not a lot of piping plovers out there in the world. There's about 8,000 in the U.S., and those are broken up into three breeding populations. Um, the biggest one is on the East Coast. And here on the Great Plains, we have the second largest breeding population. We have about 2,000 birds here, a little over 2,000 birds on the Missouri River. There are a few more on the Platte River and up in the Alkali Lakes in North Dakota, up into Canada. But, uh, yeah, about a third of the piping plovers are right in this area, the Dakotas. Yeah. Well, Galen Johns, natural resource specialist. I want to come out and uh, work with you and visit these, <laughs> visit these uh, birds uh, up close and personal. But for now, thank you so much for being here with us and giving us the update. We appreciate your time. You are so welcome. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, last February, I spoke with Dr. Rachel Willand-Charnley about their cancer research. Dr. Willand-Charnley is an assistant professor of chemistry and biochemistry at South Dakota State University. They were studying how cancer cells trick the immune system and avoid chemotherapy treatments through some sneaky cellular communication. Well, Dr. Willand-Charnley's research into the treatment aspect of this has just been published, so we decided to take this opportunity and bring you our conversation from this winter. It's one of our favorites. Take a listen. So the work that you do is interdisciplinary, and it's going to be hard for people to understand all of the details of it. But broadly speaking, you're trying to understand how cancer cells behave in a way to help us fight cancer, right? That's the basics of it. Yes. So um, to, put it, to put it simply, uh, you've begun to hit the nail on the head. Uh, part of my program, part of my work that we're discussing today 
focuses on understanding how cancer really communicates with various cells that are part of your immune system. So in other words, my work focuses on understanding how cancer communicates with your immune system. And we specifically are interested in understanding what tactics uh, right now we are focused on lung and colon cancer employ to manipulate that communication for its benefit with your immune system. Okay. Now, right there, I want to ask you a question about, <laughs> I'm already going to go down a rabbit hole, um, but then we'll come back it's to the fine. research. We often communicate about cancer in language of combat. It's a battle. It's sure. a war. We're going to fight it. And immediately you are communicating in the language of dialogue and communication and how things mm-hmm. um, that feels interesting to me. Can you say more about that yeah. as far as like how you as a scientist bring that sort of humanities based question into your work? Sure. I, I, I believe I understand what you're asking. Um, we often think of components of our bodies as very foreign And as scientists, we need to find ways in which to relate to these biochemical processes uh, so that we can better understand them and then relate our findings to the general public. And the bottom line is you really don't have to try that hard because, um, you know, what is happening in biological systems between ourselves is that our cells communicate just like we communicate with one another. The abstract aspect of this is that how our cells communicate just is a little bit differently than, for example, how you and I are using our vocal cords to communicate to one another in words. Um, What we have learned as, and I'll drop some terminology that I can explain. So um, categorically, I'm an organic chemist, a glycobiologist, and a cancer immunologist. And the aspect of our work, my work that we're discussing today is me as a glycobiologist, which is a scientist who studies sugars Mm -hmm. and the role that sugars play in biological processes and specifically pertinent to our conversation is how those sugars are used by cancer in in those types of disease processes. Um, And this is where the immunology folds in. And so how is this all relative to communication of these cells in our body? Well, uh, first we need to understand uh, that the cells in our bodies are literally covered in a layer of sugar residues. And we as glycobiologists, uh, we affectionately refer to this layer of sugar residues as the sugar coat. So I met, I really think of cells putting on a coat made of sugar, but okay. I mean, the reality yeah. is, is that if, you know, cells, our cells in our body are coated in various sugars that are appended to cell surface lipids and proteins. Um, and this is how, this is the reason why we care about this sugar coat, if you will, is because the sugar coat is the first form of communication between cells in our bodies. And with that in mind, so let's just recap what I've said. I've said that, you know, cells in our body are covered in a layer of sugar residues. And aside from offering protection to our cells, this layer of sugar residues, they are um, forms of communication between cells. Now, with that in mind, cancer, these are our cells, they also wear a sugar coat. Um, 
But what my lab has discovered and what other labs have been working on for years now is that cancers can overexpress certain certain types of sugar residues and they can utilize a very specific sugar residue that my lab studies called sialic acid mm -hmm. to manipulate communication between that cancer cell and your immune system. And uh, a recent publication in the Journal of Glycobiology that we published focused on that communication between lung and colon cancers and how uh, certain lung and colon cancers were able to hide in plain sight from mm -hmm. your own immune system and specifically from natural killer cells. Um, in other words, cancers use certain sugar residues and very specific structural features on said sugar residues to manipulate and evade your immune system. And right now, this is a large focus of my program. We have a paper that's currently under review with Frontiers in Oncology that um, sheds light on how those same types of cancer use a very specific sugar residue that I mentioned called sialic acid um, to participate in multi-drug resistance. Mm. Um, and I'm really excited for that story to come out. I mean, it's hard. It's I say that and then I'm reining myself in. I'm excited to share the story about cancer and manipulating your immune system or, you know, engaging right. in multi-drug resistance. But it's, <laughs> it's important that we, you know, that we uh, share this work with everyone who wants to listen, you know, so that it can inform, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies and, and glycan therapeutic development, which is also something my lab works on. I want to know what kind of, you know, in this, this hiding in plain sight paper, which I have in front of me, you know, it mentions some mm -hmm. of the, the methodology and the CRISPR gene editing. And so take, oh, us, sure. take us inside the lab. And, you know, I think a lot of people who are listening to this show would have a general idea of what CRISPR is. How does that intersect with the research that you were doing on how cancer cells behave? Yes. So good question. Um, so I mentioned that my lab is particularly interested in a certain type of uh, sugar. Now your body when we say sugar, most people think table sugar, but right. um, your body, there are nine canonical forms of sugar that are, and I mean native to your body that are participatory in biochemical processes and that your body needs. And out of those canonical sugar residues, we know, for example, and this is where CRISPR comes in, that there is a very specific type of sugar residue, sialic acid, that is actually overexpressed in cancers. And so we consider it a hallmark of cancer when we see this one sugar residue overexpressed in the sugar coat. Now, sialic acid out of those um, native sugar residue residues, it is very structurally diverse. Uh, so it can have many different types of what we call functional groups hanging off of its structure. And the CRISPR gene editing comes in because I am very interested in so out of the five cancer-associated forms of sialic acid, my lab is very interested in one functional group alteration on sialic acid called an acetyl and how that functional group converts to a hydroxyl group or what people are more commonly familiar with a hydroxyl group in alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so if you're interested in studying how this functional group alters communication between itself and your immune system, then you need a way to study that functional group when it's present and when it's absent. 
uh, on the sugar residue. And that's where CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing came in. Um, so I developed these cell lines during my time as a postdoc at, at, in Carolyn Bertozzi's lab at Stanford University. And I removed the genes that were that are responsible for putting that functional group onto sialic acid. And so the two genes that I removed in different cell lines are sialic acid acetyl esterase, which takes the acetyl group off of the structure, and then CASTI1 puts the acetyl group on. And so by using CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, I had a very direct method to ensuring that this cell line lacks the ability to put the acetyl group on and this other cell line lacks the ability to take it back off. And so mm -hmm. that's how I used it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. The part that I understand yeah. is super fascinating. Um, one of the questions okay, I good. wanted to know is that, um, so is your research looking to understand how this behaves or is your research also looking into therapeutics? Because you mentioned cancer immunology. Is that for somebody else to build on or is that something that you're also trying to do with your own work? Yes. So we actually received funding um, because we have already begun paving the way for glycan therapeutics. So nice. my lab um, has developed antibody enzyme conjugates that specifically target that functional group on the cell surface. And we're, we have studies that are underway to see how effective that glycan therapeutic will be. Um, as we work to continue to understand, you know, the, I, you know, metaphorically, I'm saying motivation for these cancers to have overexpressed these sialic acids, et cetera. You know, I do take comfort in knowing that there are already uh, promising glycan therapeutics that are going through clinical trials right now because we acknowledge that this is an issue, that this is this these overexpressed sugar residues are being used in uh, by cancer in negative ways. And so as we work to understand um, all of these biochemical processes, I, I do take solace in in knowing that you have scientists that have already begun, aside from me, paving the way um, for these type of chemotherapeutics, essentially. Cancer has touched my family in so many different ways. And I remember, you know, everybody's thinking about Jimmy Carter right now, the former president. And when he first went through, like, some kind of immunotherapy for cancer treatment, everybody was like, what does that mean? And we all started thinking differently about cancer. My brother went through CAR-T treatment, mm -hmm. and we're like, what does that mean? And we said, and had to learn what that was. And um, it's it's devastating to have this. I always say it's super fascinating unless it's happening to you. Um, but it's devastating right. to have these conversations sometime. And yet it gives me great hope as a family member that there are these. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, honestly, I mean, it's super personal now. But one of the things, you know, oh, my sure. brother Wes was part of these clinical trials with the CAR-T treatment. And he didn't make it um, through. It wasn't effective for him. But we said, it will help someone else. If you go through, <laughs> if you go through this suffering as a patient, mm -hmm. we knew there were scientists measuring mm -hmm. everything that happened to his body. And mm -hmm. 50 years from now, I mean, that might save someone else. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> for the work oh, that you do in the you're lab. You're welcome. <laughs> that changes our lives it's... in some ways. Yeah. It's absolutely my pleasure, and yeah. I really sympathize with with what you 
had experienced and still experience and um you do have my deepest sympathies and i uh, yeah and i'm 38 years old and i say that unabashedly yeah. <laughs> and um i have experienced uh, family members uh, one family member in particular that comes to mind who had a, a multi-form glioblastomas which is a very difficult cancer to treat and then you know a couple of family members who have had colon cancer and breast cancer and you know the research is absolutely uh two steps forward one step back or sometimes it feels like one step forward two steps back and uh sincerely there is not a day that goes by that i'm not always keeping in mind who my work is for yeah. and um that is definitely a motivation that keeps me going because our jobs as scientists we dedicate our lives to working to develop and offer solutions to problems that are facing society um even if we don't see the payoff in the next 5 years or the next 10 years um at some point our research will be of some value down the line Dr. Rachel Willand Charnley is Assistant Professor of Chemistry and Biochemistry at South Dakota State University. Let's take a moment now for a pretty interesting grandpa. Clark Arns is a third generation Meade County rancher. He's also the grandson of a 1902 cowboy. Well, this June, he sat down with Dakota Life to share stories of his grandfather, Garfield Simons. Garfield wore a lot of hats. In addition to being a 1902 cowboy, he was a wolfer, one of the original Meade County settlers, and when the need was urgent, a dentist. Back at that time, the wolves were real bad predators. They killed a lot of cattle and they horses and whatever, and there was a bounty on them. And I think that was in the fifty dollars or something for an adult wolf, which at that time was huge. And but the the story is that my granddad and two other men, they they found a wolf den. Well, anyway, <clears throat> he says. When we went down the next morning, we saw two big gray wolves outside the den. And then I had to crawl. I went to crawl into the den. There was a short bend in the hole, so I couldn't get through. So I sent one of the small carny boys into the hole. He came out scared to death. Is it all right if I read this? And he said, there is an old one in there. The boy was afraid to go back in, so I took a hatchet and cut out the hole so I could crawl back in where the pups were. I took my saddle rope and I put it on around one hind foot of the wolf. She was growling when I, <laughs> I was putting it on. Wolf and coyote hunting was a pretty big deal with him. He was kind of a what they called a woofer. But he, he started, uh, he was a... Um, have you ever heard of the Cowboys in 1902? Well, 
the 19-2 deal was that they um, was the last, what they call, considered the last big roundup. It, it was all open. Everything was open. There was no fences. And in and cattle outfits, you know, you branded them and turned them loose, and who knows where they went. So when they, all these cowboys would be hired to round up these cattle, and they rounded up from dozens and hundreds of miles. And they had their representatives there, and then they would say, well, that's Joe's calf, and that's Carl's calf, and, uh, you know. So anyway, when those, when those guys got elderly, then they uh, formed an association that's called the Cowboys of 192. Another thing that is very interesting that he did, <clears throat> I'll read you this. There were no dentists except in Sturgis and Rapid City. So when anyone had a toothache, they would come to Gar, Gar they called him Gurry, and he would pull their teeth. He had a pair of forships <laughs> and pulled teeth for many who came. He didn't pull the pain, pull the teeth until the pain became unbearable. Well, I guess they knew how to do it. <laughs> you know, you don't survive out here unless you unless you know. No, no, the ropes. Dakota Life Greetings from Hill City airs on September 14th. You can keep up with it at sdpb.org slash Dakota Life. Up next, we'll talk about a collection of mounted animals, what the city of Sioux Falls intends to do with it, and how all of it plays out on social media. Kevin Wooster is with us. Stay with us, too, on listener-supported SDPB Radio. to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Henry Brockhouse was a big game hunter before his massive collection of mounted exotic animals was housed at the zoo in Sioux Falls. Those animals were crowded behind glass at a hardware store. School children were bussed to West Sioux Hardware to gaze through that glass and contemplate everything from the size of a giraffe to the nuances of man's relationship with nature. And of course, before those animals were shot, stuffed, and mounted, they roamed free in wild places until Brockhouse brought them to the ground and shipped them home. Well, displays of big game hunting trophies haven't aged particularly well, and neither has the Brockhouse collection. But the decision to close the arsenic-tainted collection to visitors has caused something of an uproar in the city of Sioux Falls and online. Kevin Wooster writes about all this at sdpb.org slash Wooster. His column is called On the Other Hand, and he's with us now from the SDPB studios in Rapid City. Hey, Kevin, welcome. Hey, Lori. Um, you, uh, you, you, the people in Sioux Falls are going to say, why does Kevin Wooster mouth it off on this from out in Rapid City? It's none of his business. But uh, <laughs> No one's going to say that a, in Sioux Falls. <laughs> okay, really? Okay. All right, that uh, that's the great thing about social media, and uh, yeah. you you mentioned that that I went on and I'd I'd watched a report on this, and I've seen the Brockhouse collection years ago, many years ago, 
and maybe even covered some things about it when I was working for the Argus. I can't remember for sure. And it was okay. And really, they really did a nice job of educational panels and, you know, some recordings and things that you could listen to, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to have a whole bunch of stuffers around and big ones, giraffes, elephants, things like that, uh, I think they did a nice job of making it really educational. But uh, as you said in your very nice introduction, uh, there's a lot of complicated issues yeah. uh, surrounding this. I used to go on the field trips. Elementary school, they used to take us on the bus from rural northwest Iowa, and that would that was the destination. We probably mm-hmm. had ice cream when we were done or something like yeah. that. But I remember standing yeah. there really, I mean, what the zoo did with this collection versus what they looked like when I saw them, when they were really, really crowded together and there was no, you know, context, right? You just, you just gazed at them and then, and walked away. Um, yeah. the zoo impro- but they are tainted with arsenic. The zoo has a new future, um, but not everybody is happy with the idea that they might have, uh, you know, <laughs> well, they don't know what to do with them next, frankly. What happened when you posted it online? You got even more historical context that happened to be positive, not just the usual... <laughs> social media gut punch yeah i mean i had done a a social media post on my on the other hand with kevin wooster facebook page i've got two facebook pages one personal kevin which is kevin wooster and that's Mm -hmm. family and birds and flowers and things and the (laughs) other one is more political Mm -hmm. and uh and i put up a brief one about the proposal to allow spearing of rainbow trout in the black hills reservoirs and nobody cared about that. <laughs> but they <laughs> I mean, cared they about the Brockhouse collection. Two likes. And uh. I thought when I saw this report and went in and knocked out a quick blog, this I said uh. this to myself, this is going to be a different animal, and it was. Oh, and, uh, and of course, uh, actually the comments were very good. They were very thoughtful, and people had been to the collection as children and, and had taken kids there and whatever, and how their perception and thoughts about it had changed over the years. And and then there was Rick Nolby, the former mayor, when this all happened back in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, you know, he, he jumped on, and he always brings a, a really thoughtful perspective and some history to these things, and he did in this case. Yeah. So Mayor Paul Tenhagen is like, hey, I really had other things that I wanted to be uh, <laughs> yeah. dealing with and talking <laughs> about right now. But I think the addition of Rick Nolby and others... You know, this is about nostalgia. It's about people's childhoods. It's about, you know, growing up and facing some hard realities. The panda that you mentioned in your blog post, the giant panda that came from China in 1985, they had a citywide contest to name the panda. Yeah. And my little brother named that panda. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Not... I had no idea. (laughs) Fun fact, (laughs) deep into the trivia. But I guess the point that I'm bringing up is like when you, the the collection was um, communicated differently in the past. And so people bring those memories to the, and I don't think my brother has any, you know, concerns about the collection going away. Um, He's a full adult (laughs) business owner now. But (laughs) but those are the things that people remember and they have to process it. If nothing else, they have to process it. Yeah, and, and uh, Rick Nobby, I thought, really put it well, where he said, this is going to take some time, and we need yeah. to go through a process, and we need to talk about this, and it has to be fact-based, not emotion-based. And and there's going to be emotions in it, for sure, but 
he's right. I mean, it has to be fact-based. And yeah. I can understand where Mayor uh, Ten Hagen is coming from. You know, all the things that Sioux Falls has to worry about right now, do you really want to put yeah. this out mm -hmm. front? I can see why he wouldn't want to. But some people will, and it's going to get talked about. And I hope it's done on social media and other media and in person in the way uh, former Mayor Nobi wants it to be talked about. I will confess that I was a teenager when that panda came. I really thought it was going to be a real panda, like a living panda. <laughs> I thought yeah. the panda was going to the zoo, and then it was a taxidermy panda, and I was kind of just, uh, you know, I was a little disappointed at that moment. Yeah. So um, well, social media can yeah. be a place for constructive idea sharing, that seems. Yeah, it was here. It, yeah. it was very, and I, and I always feel Give so good time. about that. Give it time. It's coming. Let's see what happens. Two hours. Talk to me in two hours, Kevin. No. So, somebody's going to throw paint over the whole discussion. <laughs> Kevin Wooster, you can find his work at sdpb.org slash Wooster, and you can find his always thoughtful conversations here with me on Thursdays on In the Moment. So nice to talk to you, friend. Thank you. Thanks, Lori. While Rocky Lyons spent her childhood among the sights and smells of Bob's Cafe in Sioux Falls, which her parents ran for more than 60 years. Rocky and her sister Rhonda grew up there before moving out of state as adults. Rocky is now in Oregon. Rhonda went to Sacramento, California. But then Rhonda was killed in one of the first mass shootings in the state. That was in 1982. Rocky Lyons has written a memoir about her family, the Cafe and Her Loss. She's looking for a publisher for that memoir now, but she's joining us for our conversation today on In the Moment. Rocky Lyons, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Lori. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, grounding this conversation in today because as new mass shootings happen across America, I'm wondering how that impacts your grief journey very good question. It's been over 40 years since Rhonda's death, and I think I'm still processing. As you know, grief is not linear, and sometimes it ambushes you. But um, in terms of recent shootings, in fact, I was watching the PBS NewsHour last night, another shooting, and I was thinking this morning about that frog in hot water metaphor, yeah. where we react to sudden events, but we seem to fail as a culture to react to things that are slowly changing conditions. And I think about that every time I hear of another shooting. Tell me about your sister, because sometimes when we, you know, attach someone's name to the last 10 minutes of their life or their last few hours of their life, that can be the thing we remember Tell me about Rhonda before that day. When she was three, four years old, she found a bosom buddy in our neighbor whose name was Penny, or One Cent, as my uncle called her. <laughs> Rhonda and Penny were soul sisters from the day they met. One hot, hot summer day, they went to the house between our houses where a new neighbor had moved in. Rhonda and Penny in their little girly panties, because it was so hot, knocked on the new neighbor's door. 
and said, we are Rhonda and Penny, and we want you to know that the old neighbor who lived here before you used to give us cookies. <laughs> and, of course, the neighbor gave them cookies, and they walked away and went over to our house and watched cartoons. So nice. even at a young age, they were incorrigible. <laughs> Another story about my sister when she was 14 we grew up in Bob's Cafe where the family story was that my dad wouldn't even let the dog rest if there was work to do. <laughs> so we always worked. And one Friday night, there was a basketball game, and Rhonda had been planning to attend. At 3.30 that Friday afternoon, the phone rang at the cafe, and Sue, who was supposed to work that night, called in sick. Mm. Well, Rhonda had just seen Sue at school and knew she was not sick. So Rhonda hopped on her bicycle, 14 years old, drove to the school and fired Sue on the spot. Oh. <laughs> and guess who worked that night? It was, it was my sister. So and Rhonda we, went to work. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, we, we, were, we were raised with a very strong work ethic, which I think uh, impacted us greatly as we continued our journey in uh, pursuing careers outside of Sioux Falls. So for your parents who were still um, you know, deeply involved in the daily operations of the cafe in 1982 when Rhonda was killed, did that public-facing work that they did, you know, they're with customers every day, they have to open the cafe, did that help them navigate their grief, or do you think it hindered their ability to really process the death? What, Looking back now, what are your thoughts? I think they each processed differently. My father grew up in the Depression, and there was some strong stoicism in his approach to life. He'd been in the war. He came back and started a business. And he didn't really want to talk about it. My mother, on the other hand, needed to talk about it. But I think because the cafe was open, sometimes 24 hours a day, that they were limited in their ability to grieve. There's a famous sociologist, Irving Goffman, who talks about the front stage and the backstage behaviors with the theater and I think my folks were often in the theater at the cafe and that that sometimes limited their ability to grieve. Mm -hmm. Now, I did find a book a couple of years ago of my mother's when our basement flooded, and I opened the book and it fell open to a, to a poem by Elizabeth Browning on grief when she'd lost her brother. And the bookmark in my mother's poetry book was four pictures of Rhonda from a five and ten, you know, dime store, those photo booths. Yeah, yeah. And it took, it took my breath away because I felt like I had stumbled onto a private moment of my mother's grief that I never knew about. So I think we were a public-facing family, needed to keep the business going. But in the darkness of the night, I think we all grieved in our own way because of our each unique relationship to my sister. Yeah. Mm, powerful stuff. Um, Rocky Lyons, we're going to put some links up to your website on our website so people can find a chapter of the book. I look forward to reading it and when it finds a publisher. That sign, you know, you talk about your mother not being private. We just have about a minute left here, but... 
um, you know, she's on the sign. A- a- airplane pilots <laughs> are landing in Sioux Falls based on the Bob's Cafe sign with a, a caricature of your of your mom. Where's that sign now? Do you know? Well, uh, my father died in 2018, and my brother and I sold the cafe, and the the new owner dismantled the cafe. And Bob's Cafe was a common name, and so they sold parts of the sign. But I understand, I've not seen it, that the neon sign or picture of my mother is in a museum or a store on Minnesota Avenue. My next visit to Sioux Falls, I'm going to go check it out. All right. More on that later. Rocky Lyons, thank you so much for being here with you. I loved hearing a little bit about your sister. I'm really sorry for that loss. And all the years that you have to carry it after that mass shooting. But thanks for keeping her name alive. Thank you for letting me tell my story. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you on tomorrow's In the Moment. Fictional detective Walt Longmire is on the hunt to solve a cold case, but the number one suspect is a member of his own family. Can he set aside his animosity to crack the case? And more importantly, will he survive the investigation? We'll talk with author Craig Johnson about his forthcoming book, The Longmire Defense. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.